Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. Today is a really special episode because we are celebrating that underwater habitat, the ocean. Because yesterday, June 8th, was World Oceans Day. This is a day where we not only celebrate our oceans and the life that depends on it, but also raise awareness of human impacts on this environment and aim to mobilize everyone that lives on this planet to do something about it. So to make changes in their everyday lives and to ask our politicians and our world leaders to take stronger action to protect this environment. This is also really at the core of what Save Our Seas does, and we've been running a campaign over the last few weeks centred around World Oceans Day, which shines a little bit more of a positive light on things. For example, we've been asking big names in marine science, conservation, communication and education to give us their reasons to love the ocean and explain why they've dedicated their lives to protecting it. And we've also highlighted some ocean winds, those recent changes, big and small, that are beginning to turn the tide. Now, this doesn't mean that we're shying away from the problems and the threats, but we know that all of you are aware of what is happening to our oceans, and a lot of you are doing things already to help generate that positive change. But we also know that it can feel a little bit overwhelming and a lot of you can sometimes feel quite anxious as to whether your actions are making a difference. And I know that I definitely feel that way. It can be quite difficult sometimes to keep going in the face of all of that kind of negative news stories and a lot of the negative science that is coming out. But that's what this episode is all about. We asked you to tell us what you're doing to help save our oceans and today we're going to talk about them in the context of some real positive changes that have happened to encourage you all to keep going and show you that what you're doing, no matter how big or small that action is, is really making a difference. So many of you responded to our call. Thank you so much. I tried to get us through as many as I could in this episode, but we are going to try and keep this going. So if you'd like to tell us your ocean win, what you're doing to help protect the oceans and get a shout out, you can do so by leaving us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use and I will read it out on the podcast. Today I'll be talking about your actions and how they are contributing to positive change for our oceans with a very special guest who has been instrumental in driving a lot of shark conservation in both the UK and internationally. My guest today is Sarah Fowler. She is a scientific advisor for the Save Our Seas Foundation and founding trustee of the Shark Trust, which is the UK member of the European Elasmobranch Association. Sarah has worked in marine ecology, conservation and management for over 25 years and was co-chair of the IUCN Species Survival Commission Shark Specialist Group, co-founder of the European Elasmobranch Association and appointed a Pew Fellow in Marine Conservation in 2005. And in 2004, she was appointed officer of the Order of the British Empire, which is being awarded an OBE by the Queen for services to marine conservation. So I think it's fair to say that Sarah knows a thing or two about protecting sharks, the oceans and how to generate positive change. 
In the next 50 minutes, we cover Sarah's career, her motivation to fight for the oceans, and some of the most positive changes that she's seen in the last decade for sharks and marine conservation, including additions to CITES and the short fin maker retention ban in the North Atlantic. She also takes a look at your actions that you sent in to us and talks about how everybody, everybody can have a role in creating a more sustainable, healthy and biodiverse future for our oceans. So, without further ado, happy World Oceans Day and let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the Whole Tooth Podcast. Hello, Isla. I'm very, very pleased to be here at last. Yes, it's so lovely to finally meet you. Um, for listeners, we've been emailing for a couple of months now because Sarah is the scientific advisor for the Save Our Seas Foundation. So I know Sarah through that. And it's so lovely to actually meet you. I was going to say in person, but virtually. <laughs> I know what you mean. It is a bit like being in person, isn't it? When we can see each other on the screen and we can see our houses and our rooms it's it's almost as good as visiting you and one day I'll do that yes please do we've just been talking about the fact that you need to come up to the west coast um on your long overdue trip to Scotland (laughs) that's right I love the open area the west coast of Scotland is just the most beautiful place in the world but yeah Sarah it's such an honor to have you on the podcast especially because we are celebrating World Oceans Day and I can't imagine having a better person to celebrate with. And the whole focus of this episode is around celebrating our oceans, but also talking about all the things that our listeners are doing to generate a positive impact and providing some ocean optimism to keep people going because I know it is really difficult when you're doing all of these actions but you're still hearing all the negative news stories and it seems like not much is changing. Um, But what we're going to talk about today is some of the positive changes that are happening because of individual action. So Sarah, are you ready to spread some ocean optimism with me? I am certainly ready and I've been looking forward to this for a while and happy World Oceans Day everybody. Yes, happy World Oceans Day. But we're going to start with a question that we ask every guest on this podcast. And that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? My most memorable experience was a very, very long time ago. It was actually probably 79 or 80 when I was in Australia for a year. I went diving in New South Wales into the centre of a group of grey nurse sharks or ragged tooth or um, sand tigers, depending on what you want to call them. And this was in the days before the population had been badly affected by fishing and and, uh, spearfishers and so on. And it was the most staggering experience I've ever had because I've been told that those animals weren't dangerous, but, you know, I didn't really know. And just to see them all gliding around as if they were on strings, on wires, looking at us and moving on and looking at us, it it was just astonishing. It was astonishing. And it was a long time ago, but it's still the top thing that really ever happened. Wow. So you kind of descended right into the middle of a, a big group of sharks? Right into the middle of a big group of sharks. It was in a secret location. And I'm not entirely sure what the location is because we, we weren't allowed to 
you know, to know where it was. But I think I do know now that it's one of the protected areas for grey nurse sharks in New South Wales and Australia. But then, you know, we it was a secret. It was a secret site and it was staggering. It was just staggering. So I just still, today I can't believe how lucky I was to see that. I really can't. It was amazing. Yeah, and of course it being a secret location sort of adds to that memorable uh, that memorable feeling about it. Yes, yes it does actually. We were we were chased out from the shore by a guy in a, a little inflatable boat who wanted to know where this place was and, and the chap who took us diving um, sort of went all over the place and then he stopped and the man caught up with him and he said, you know, I could do this all day and I'm not going to tell you where, where our dive spot is. I can do this all day, you know. <laughs> Probably time you went home now. So yes, it, that was all the sort of cloak and dagger thing to protect this amazing location at a time when grey nurse sharks weren't protected in Australia. And there was a lot of pressure on them. So yeah, it was very exciting. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Even having almost like a like a boat chase in the beginning to try and lose yes. this 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 person trying to find the the nice spot. Yeah. yeah, it makes it really exciting. And I do love that idea of it's the first time that you realise that sharks aren't after you. So we've had a few people that I speak to when I take them out into the into the water and things, they almost imagine that the sharks are immediately going to turn around and focus on them and go, oh my, oh my goodness, a human is here. And it makes you feel very kind of small in the best way possible to figure out that the sharks actually aren't that bothered by you at all. And they're just kind of going about their daily business. Well, don't forget, this was only three years after Jaws was released. Of course, of course. You know, I'm really that old. <laughs> I can remember Jaws being released. So, so sharks were a bit, ooh, ooh, sharks, you know. Want to be careful with them. Yes, yes, and that still continues to this day, though. That, that effect is carried on since Jaws was released really it's only now that we're starting to see the difference with with social media as well like people releasing these videos and people seeing people interacting with sharks or seeing sharks not interacting with humans and that's sort of beginning to change the perception but that perception is still very much there it is I I remember I mean it was admittedly it was about 20-25 years ago going to a tiny little village a little fishing village a stilt village um on an inlet in Borneo and talking to the, the locals about sharks because some of them were specialist shark fishers and they all said oh no we're frightened of sharks because we've seen that film Jaws you know we've seen Jaws we're frightened of sharks but and yet they were out with them every day and they knew and I said well has anyone in the village ever been bitten well no no has anyone ever been eaten no no but Jaws was still this sort of scary monster hanging over the heads of people who knew sharks really, really well. It was so odd. Yeah, because you'd think that personal experience would sort of override like a fantasy film, but no, apparently not. <laughs> no, but, you know, let's face it, I, I, shall, I shall, people will disapprove of me for saying this, but it was a really good film. <laughs> it is a really good of film. Sort of animal horror films, it was a really, really good film and it was a disaster for sharks. It's very sad, but I do agree with you from a like film perspective it's a cultural phenomenon there's a reason why it's lasted for such a long time but yes Steven Spielberg has a lot to answer for when it comes to <laughs> shark conservation yes yes it's it's some um, nobody realized I think I know 
some of the, the world's top shark conservationists who were advisors on the film, and they didn't realise either. I wonder if they just didn't think that people would take it so much to heart, so take it so literally. Um, but something that, in the lead up to World Oceans Day, something that Save Our Seas, that we've tried to do, um, have been is to promote lots of different reasons about why people love the ocean. So we've asked... Um, you know, lots of artists, uh, scientists, filmmakers, their reasons for loving the ocean. And I mean, you've had a really extensive career working to protect the oceans. And I, I wanted to know what are your reasons as to why you love the ocean and why have you dedicated your life to protecting it? Well, I was brought up in London and the happiest times of my childhood were the summer holidays by the sea. And so I have all of those childhood memories and just the thrill of seeing the sea appear in the distance. It's the space and the light and the sound and the smell of it is just phenomenal. And there's the constant possibility that you're about to see something truly, truly amazing. And, well, I see the sea and it makes me smile. Yes, yes, I'm exactly the same. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always, um, always brings so much joy to people. And peace as well, and peace and calm. Um, so for someone that grew up in London, what drove you to get started in marine science? Well, as I say, it was, it was the summer holidays by the sea. I had a very eccentric grandmother who was, oh, goodness me, when, I mean, she was born when Queen Victoria was still on the throne. So she was, you know, really still a Victorian. And again, this is another terrible um, admission, she collected shells. She loved shells. She had an entire room full of shells and she'd pick them up on the beach and she'd go around the world um, getting into terrible trouble with her friends she'd, she'd make friends go on cruises with her and then when they got to the port they'd all get in a taxi and my grandmother would be in the front seat whispering to the driver and her friends thought they were going to the handicraft markets but they weren't they were going to the town rubbish dump so that my grandmother could scale the <laughs> stinky heaps of rubbish and find shells that had been discarded by the fishermen. So it was just, I think, inevitable. I just loved the sea so much. I loved looking at plants and animals, you know, the seaweeds, the animals, identifying them with my little, you know, sort of I spy books. And I always wanted to work in marine conservation for as long as I can remember. Well, that, that was a huge thing in the Victorian era, really, wasn't it? It was, um, you know, collecting lots of natural artefacts from around the world and... Um, you know, they were big for butterfly collecting and taking corals and taking shells. It was just the done thing. Yeah, it was. It was just a different way of life. And of course, um, a big deal back then. And that was how people related to wildlife. So that's how you got started in, in marine science or what inspired you to get into marine science. But then how did your career develop from there? I, I did a, a master's in conservation. Because conservation was barely a subject, you know, it was barely a topic back in the day then. In fact, there was one um, master's course in, in the UK which trained people for working in nature conservation agencies. And it, it took about a dozen students a year. It was really, really unusual. It was barely a thing. And I went straight from there to work for the UK Government Conservation Agency. I was really lucky with the timing. The job turned up just as I turned up. And I was responsible for 
marine conservation advice and dive surveys and monitoring and case studies all around the coast of England, Wales and Scotland. So one of the things that I then started doing during that job was to say, hang on a minute, basking sharks, why aren't we protecting basking sharks? There's been these huge fisheries and, and populations are depleted and, and there used to be a thing called the common angel shark and it's not. It's not common anymore. Hey, and what about this giant skate, which used to be something like 30% of all the skate and ray landings in the UK? You know, has anyone seen a giant skate recently? So this was one of the issues that I became, became quite interested in. Um, and this was just one of a long, long list of issues. But um, the sharks, the skates, the rays was something that very, very few people were thinking about. And because very few people were thinking about that, I spent a lot more time saying, excuse me, sharks, <laughs> excuse me, shark conservation. And in due course, that just sort of took over my life because not many people were doing it then. Of course, so many people are doing it now. So I was, I was um, lucky in so many ways, but one of them was I got in on the ground floor with, with shark and ray conservation because people weren't noticing that it needed to be done. Yes, um, and we've had Dave Ebert on the podcast as well, and he talks about a very similar thing in that shark science and interest in sharks really wasn't a thing until very recently, <laughs> especially in the UK. Um, people were talking about, you know, great white sharks and sharks in tropical waters, but UK sharks still weren't really getting that much of a look in. But yes, um, I love the idea of you following people around going, but yes, but what about sharks? <laughs> Has anyone seen a giant skate? <laughs> <laughs> I started making a nuisance of myself um, about giant skate. And I was told, oh, no, they're extinct. You know, there's no point in protecting them on the Wildlife and Countryside Act because they're extinct. And the same with the angel shark. No, we won't do that. They're extinct. And, you know, that's just, that's just not a good reason for not giving something the, the highest level of protection you can because, of course, they're not extinct. They're absolutely not. Well, thank goodness that you made a nuisance about it, else we might not have seen that and we might not be finding these egg cases. So <laughs> we have you to thank for that. We're going to talk about some sort of ocean optimism, if you like. We're going to talk about some, some positive things, but we're not shying away from the fact that there are lots of threats to the ocean still. There are lots of problems to address. You know, there are a lot of things happening, a lot of things going on in the ocean that we need to pay attention to. But the point that we're getting to is that it can feel a little overwhelming. People can get a little bit of fatigue uh, in their efforts to try and help solve these issues because you know it often feels like there's we're not making much difference at all and I wondered you know what are some of the things that keep you going how do you maintain that energy to keep fighting for you know shark species to keep fighting for uh, protective measures what keeps you going what keeps me going is that the common skate isn't extinct the angel shark is not extinct uh we are seeing a change. We're seeing things turning around. And the other thing that is amazing is one of the biggest reasons we see things changing is because of all the people involved. And so there's so much public awareness. There's so much understanding. And there is a huge groundswell of public support for, for shark conservation and management. 
And that is a huge difference and that is hugely energizing and positive and wonderful. But the other thing is that we are, you know, we're seeing actual changes. So in your neck of the woods, where basking sharks were very heavily fished from the 40s, I think right through even to the 70s, and we were really concerned about the state of, of the basking sharks then. Um, now I understand, although I haven't had a chance to go and look myself recently, but I will soon. Now I understand that um, people are seeing much, much bigger basking sharks than they used to. And they're also seeing many more small basking sharks compared with the you know former times. So what we're seeing is basking sharks recovering, maturing, having lots and lots more pups. And, and that's because people are so much more interested because we have them protected, we have management plans. Um, people now know that they're really important for ecotourism. They're one of the staggering you know, sights of the ocean is to see a basking shark fin come up behind next to your boat. And it's just so big. And to see them in the water, they're just so big um, and so wonderful. And the, the, the long distance travels they do yeah, it's phenomenal, all of this stuff. So, so there's this huge now public community and a research community and a professional conservation community, all of them working for shark and ray conservation and making a clear difference in the water, which is what it's all about. We can, we can add new laws, we can do research, but actually what we want to see is a difference in the water. And we, we are seeing that. It's, it's working. It's happening. And we need just we just need more of it. But you know, we we know that this can can work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it is slowly starting to to sort of trickle into a positive impact, you know, on a on a larger and larger scale. Definitely. And it's it's not just in the UK, of course. We're talking about that because that's happened to be where we are, but it's all over the world. So um the number of countries that have protected all sharks in their waters is growing, you know, several a year. Um, the uh, numbers of countries that are managing their fisheries more carefully um, is growing all the time. We get more information. Um, oh, it's, it's, all, it's all looking really very, very positive. There are species which still need a lot of help, but we're getting into the right place to give them that help. So there's a, such a lot to be optimistic about. There is, there is. And that's so, that's so good to hear. Even I'm feeling a little bit energized already. And we're only, you know, 20, 20 minutes into our conversation. But I wanted to talk about very specific change that occurred like late last year, which is to do with short fin makos in the North Atlantic um, and the retention ban that was adopted last year after a lot of, you know, very brilliant campaigning from lots and lots and lots of different groups of people. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. So how that ban kind of came into, into fruition, really, because there was a lot of work behind the scenes in the years leading up to that. There was a huge amount of work and some absolutely brilliant scientists doing the stock assessments, actually looking at the status of the populations and beginning to ring alarm bells and saying, this fishery is not sustainable. It really needs to be managed. In fact, you know, eventually they were saying, this fishery needs to close now. It just needs to close now. But um, 
the governments who take the decisions on whether to manage a species like mako, um, they need to be convinced, not just of the arguments, but also of the politics for, for it. So, so the um, mako in the North Atlantic is managed by um, what's known as a tuna regional fishery management organization, ICAT. ICAT's job is to look after tunas and swordfish and that sort of thing. It's been a long, slow process of getting the countries that decide what it is that ICAT are going to do, the member countries, it's been a process getting them to agree that actually they ought to look at sharks as well. And countries, in other words, governments, only change their minds if that's what their voters want them to do. So we're actually straight back to, this is what people in the street, the people sitting at home, they are the ones who change policies by putting the case to their governments for change, and it's a scientific case, you know, the scientists are there saying, we desperately need to do something about these populations. Look, here's the science, it's so bad. Then we have the non-governmental organizations who are not just talking about the science, but they're actually interpreting the science to the politicians. And the only reason they can do that so forcefully is because there are thousands and thousands of members of the public behind them and adding their voice to the, this case for support. So it's, it's really a huge partnership between the scientists telling us what's happening to the MAKO people in the streets, people at home who are also saying, we need to do something about this. And hey, I vote for you. You know, I'm writing to my member of parliament. I'm writing to the minister. I'm saying we need to do something about that. And the work that happens in between is the non-governmental organizations, which are helping make the case and talking to the governments. And in many cases, it's also, don't forget the fishing industry. There are some of the fishing industries which are really, really concerned about sustainability. They're not all villains. Fishing industries, fisheries, they know that uh, if the general public doesn't want to eat their fish, they're going to be in big trouble. So there's a huge amount of work that actually goes on in the industry through the certification programs. Um, which also promotes conservation. Uh, it's, it's economically important for the people who process the fish, who freeze the fish, who can the fish, to be able to say, well, not only did we, were we not mean to dolphins when we were catching these fish, and of course dolphin-friendly tuna fisheries are you know, long established, but we're not being mean to sharks either. So there are actually a, there's, a, there's a whole community of support for shark conservation which is coming in from many, many different angles. That's something that's so important to to stress because I, I get a lot of people as well when we whenever we ask these questions of, you know, what are, what are you doing? Tell us what you're doing to create an impact. There's a lot of people that get in touch and say, well, you know, I'm not a scientist or I don't work in this area. And But you don't have to. Um, one of the biggest things that you can do is to use your voice and also use your power as a consumer as well because as you as you rightly said you know it's 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 very much driven by what people are demanding and what people are voting for and you can have a lot of power in that and that's something that we saw with the you know the the short fair maker retention ban as well as that that came from a huge public campaign 
that was driven by, you know, the Shark Trust, among among many others who did a lot of fantastic work to really reach out to people and say, this is what the problem is. Um, and this is how you can help. And all it took was, you know, an online petition that went round and people, you know, really put in pressure on the on their MPs. Because as as you very well know, it's so difficult to get a lot of world leaders to agree on something. Oh, yes. <laughs> Especially when yeah. it's to do with a fishery. But if if it comes from the voters, they don't really have that much choice. They don't. Because, you know, we elect our political representatives. They work for us. So if we ask them, in, if enough of us together ask them to do something, hey, you know, they're working for us. So they, they should pay attention, sit up and pay attention. And that is exactly what's happened with ICAT. People all over the North Atlantic, the North Atlantic countries and the shark fishing nations started to pay attention because of public um, pressure public arguments. Yes, and, and, and something else that's happening, which in a way is, is a negative thing because it means that these species are in trouble, but also it's a positive thing because it means that we might potentially start to see some protective measures in place for these species, are the addition of more shark species to CITES. Um, so in particular, there was uh, makos, wedgefishes, guitarfishes were added in 2019 on top of the species that are already there. Um, and I wondered if you could break down for our listeners what CITES is and what it means for sharks, rays, skates when they are listed in CITES. Right, so CITES is one of the big multilateral environmental conventions and its job is very simple. Its job is to ensure that international trade doesn't threaten the survival of species. So that's, that's a very simple sort of mission statement, if you like. But how you get to that point is more complicated. So there are two main um, appendices for CITES. There's Appendix 1, which is a total trade ban. And there's Appendix 2, which most CITES species are in. And Appendix 2 is actually about making sure that trade is legal, sustainable, and traceable. So for species like the sawfishes, which are in Appendix 1, you can't trade them commercially because they are so, so seriously threatened. Um, the, the level of protection through CITES is very, very high. But the mako and the other species of sharks... Um, all the other species of sharks and rays, apart from the um, sawfishes, they're all in Appendix 2. So what that means in the case of Mako is that every country whose um, fishing fleet fishes Mako has to make sure that that fishery is legal. Because if it's not legal, you can't send Mako meat to other countries. They won't accept it if it's not got a legal certificate with it. Um, you can't take them in from the high seas to your own waters if it's not legal. Um, and it also has to be sustainable. So there's a, a sustainability finding. It's, it's actually called a non-detriment finding, which is not a, very, um, not a sort of very catchy term. But it just means basically when we're fishing these animals or when we're picking these flowers or if we're taking these birds from the wild that is not going to be damaging to the wild population. 
So in the case of MAKO, it's exactly like fisheries management. It's basically saying, yep, we've got a sustainable fishery here. Um, MAKO in the North Atlantic is prohibited. So actually, a country cannot make a legal acquisition finding. And the importance of CITES in this case is that it's supporting the measures that the fisheries managers have adopted. So an ICAT, which is the regional fishery body, can say, okay, we're going to, we're going to shut down um, MAKO catches. But it's really quite hard to enforce that unless you can also enforce the, um, the trade, the international trade. Um, in the South Atlantic, there's a certain quota of MAKO still permitted. So it's really important that the countries that are catching those MAKO also have that legal um, certificate and the sustainability certificate. Um, otherwise, they can't bring MAKO home. So it's, it's a really important complementary measure um, for the fisheries management. Um, and then the yeah, last thing that CITES does, I've talked about legal, sustainable. The third thing is traceable. And CITES trade comes with permits and reporting so that it's all completely transparent. Countries can see who's caught what and then where they sent it. Since the... Um, listing of mako shark in CITES, the countries that catch mako have been doing that. They've been producing their legal acquisition findings. They've, they've been um, producing a certificate which says, yes, this is taken from the high seas, but it's legal and it's sustainable. And they've been reporting back to CITES. So anyone now can go and take a look at the CITES trade website and they can see who's catching mako, how much, where it's going. So we now have this completely transparent traceability, um, which helps to support what the fisheries managers have decided and was not otherwise possible without CITES. So it's, it's very, I know I'm sounding like a nerd. I'm sounding like a nerd, I am. I'm a CITES nerd, but actually it's, it's really, really important that the measures that are adopted can be um, seem to be complied with. And the wonderful thing about MAKO is that it's actually bringing CITES and the regional fisheries management bodies together to support each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is so important. Don't, don't ever apologise for sounding like a nerd or being a nerd because we are all nerds in this podcast <laughs> and our listenership are all shark nerds. So we love this. We love this stuff. It's so interesting. Um, but, but yes, I guess in a way... It's it's not it's not always a great thing that sharks are being added to CITES because it means that they are at the level where they are being overfished and where they need protection. But it is a good thing that they are listed because it means that those measures are being put in place to change that and to make that better. Um, and this kind of links me on quite nicely to our sort of listener comments on what people are doing to help, you know, to help generate a positive impact on the oceans. A lot of you got in touch. Thank you so much. Um, and when we're talking about CITES, obviously, a lot of that is informed by science. Um, and we're being able to answer a lot more of those questions as science advances and as a lot more people are getting into marine science. And some of our listeners have got in touch to say they are early career scientists. Um, so uh, Hooten's first law, I hope I said that right, 
um, Elasma Brank Ali and Rebecca. Um, you know, thank you so much for getting in touch. And it's so lovely to hear that you were at the beginnings of your shark or marine science career. Um, and they all said very similar things in that they are they got into science to start to inform things like CITES or inform protective measures and legislation to help better protect sharks and help better protect the oceans. And I wanted to ask you, Sarah, how do you think our scientific understanding of sharks has advanced over the last few decades? And, you know, what impact has this had for conservation and policy? It's advanced to an extraordinary amount. It really has. It's been phenomenal. Um, we now know that there are far more species than we used to be aware of. Um, we, we have so much better information about where they live, what countries um, they occur in and how to protect them. We know about their habitats. We know about their status. And by their status, I mean their conservation status. Um, so one of the pieces of work I did oh, quite a long time ago now was to, do, to, to help to... Um, run the first ever global status assessment of the sharks, skates, rays and chimeras. And before we started that, we really didn't know anything much about the status. We knew very, very little. And now that whole process has just been repeated for the second time. And we can actually say authoritatively that these species are endangered. These species are critically endangered. These species are vulnerable. And every time new red list assessments are produced, there are fewer species that are data deficient. So we have much better information now about the status of species and that information is all available to scientists. So early career scientists who want to think about any particular species they want to focus on, they can go and look at the IUCN red list and you know choose a, a species that's um, data deficient or choose a species that's um, uh, particularly threatened in their area. We have um, tools that we could not even imagine um, in the early days of shark conservation. Satellite tracking, instead of putting a, a little visual tag on a shark and waiting to see whether it turns up again, we've got satellite tracking, which tells us not only where the sharks are going, but how deep they swim and how often they come to the surface. We now have these um, vessel monitoring systems, AIS, which means you can tell where the fishing boats are. We know where the areas are where there's greatest overlap and potentially greatest threat to sharks from fishing. We have genetic analyses, which means we know how closely related sharks are to each other. We can identify totally new species with the help of genetic analyses and, and discover that species that we thought were all one and the same are actually a lot of different species and they need more careful um, protection as a result. Um, Gloves, baited remote underwater video systems are being used to find out how many species use an area, um, how often, you know, what is the population density. Um, alongside gloves, we've got amazing work now on environmental DNA, eDNA, when you can also, with a degree of success, take a water sample and find out how many shark species have been swimming around in it and sort of leaking bits of DNA off their bodies. Good old-fashioned photo identification, which actually any 
diver or snorkeler or even someone who's out in a boat looking at basking sharks can do. We've got the most amazing ways now to, to use photo identification to identify completely um, without going even near the, near the animal. We can identify individual whale sharks, share that information on the database, find out where they go. Same with basking shark fins. But yeah, there's, the science now is, is just so exciting, so different, so amazing. So early career scientists, you are so lucky. You know, you've got, you've got so much you can do. But of course, as you said earlier, you know, you don't necessarily have had to have done a PhD or even a degree even to, to, to be involved with science because we are seeing a lot of um, positive impact from citizen science as well. So you're talking about photo ID there, like you said, people can take pictures on their own cameras now and, and submit that onto websites. Also with the Sharp Trust as well, you've got the, the great egg case hunt where you can submit your findings and be part of that data collection and that science as well. So there's so many opportunities there. Um, but thank you so much to the early career scientists who got in touch. But there's also a lot that we can do outside of science as well. And we've had a few listeners who have got in touch sort of with their lifestyle changes. Um, so for example, we've had Kyle Colbeck, who is reducing their plastic use. Um, it's Sarah Kerr is driving less. And then also we've had xxj.erz, <laughs> who is using reusable bottles, grocery bags, and also doing beach cleanups as well. All of that is so, so wonderful. And every little action helps. But do you think we are starting to see these kind of changes on a wider scale do you think more people are, are starting to to think more carefully about about their their lifestyle and, and and what they're doing yes i do i think it's wonderful um how this huge groundswell of change and awareness is is um spreading throughout the world really and it may not seem much to say oh okay well i'm not using any plastic bags this year but you know there are so many people in the world who, if they stop using plastic bags, that's going to make a tremendous difference. And um, it's wonderful that people are actually wanting to do this and doing it and thinking twice about getting in the car rather than getting on a bus or train. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's not just one person, you know, it's not just a, a sort of um, a gesture by one person because there are millions doing it. And I think it's sometimes easy to think, oh, well, what's the point? You know, it's just me. But it's not just us. It's millions and millions of people. And the more people who take those choices and tell people that they're taking those choices, the more thought there will be among others to say, oh, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't use my car. Oh, I don't need to use my car. I don't need to drive to the shops. I can just walk and I'll take one of my bags with me. You know, it's a little thing, but it's really, really important because a little thing is not little when millions of people are doing it. Absolutely. And then that links us on really nicely to a kind of another theme that we had in the comments where we had quite a few people saying that the things they are doing are communicating and spreading awareness of these issues and also how people can help as well. So um, this includes uh, goat artists who got in touch about uh, using their social media account to spread awareness. Um, 
Cam Castle, who is making a film on sustainable practices in Greece, um, which, you know, I really hope you share the finished product with us. We would love to see that. Um, Steve Walters also says that they are teaching young people about plastics and how that impacts the ocean. Um, and also my favorite name uh, <laughs> of someone that has ever sent us a comment, um, Nancy Lobster Legs, which fantastic name, um, says she is spreading awareness with her Instagram posts and also through volunteering as well. And just like you said there, it's it's so, so, so important to, even if it's not on social media, even if it's just talking to your family and friends about what you're doing and how easy it is to make these changes and what the impact of those changes can be that can make a huge difference um and we've got lots and lots of different ways of doing that now um which is really important and then one last thing that i wanted to ask you about sarah is because we had a few listeners also getting in touch to say that they are either reducing their intake of fish or they've even stopped eating fish entirely um so a uh, silt seal said this she said that um she has um stopped eating fish altogether and also sarah cryer who i also know is a great early career marine scientist hi sarah thank you for getting in touch um she says that her way of plant-based eating has also opened up conversations about the environmental impact of food and also sustainability as well um, and just on that note, I wanted to ask you, we, we kind of touched on this earlier, um, but we were talking about sustainable fisheries. And I wondered if, because a lot of people are being a bit more conscious about where their food comes from, about where their fish comes from, and sort of making different choices in the fish that they eat, I wondered if that is making any progress towards sustainable fisheries management, you know, sort of on a on a broader scale it definitely is it's it's so great to be responsible and to think twice about what what it is you're you're buying in the shops and there are more and more sustainable fisheries now out there and we have a choice obviously just not to eat fish at all or um, to choose sustainable sources but I think we need to be aware that in a developed nation, we can make choices about not eating fish. But in most parts of the world, that is not a choice for people. Yeah, we've got, I, I can never remember numbers. I'm, I'm a terrible um, number blind person. But there are so many people in the world who have to eat fish to survive. And of course, um, we're so lucky because fish stocks can support populations if they're managed properly. So I would say that don't let's imagine that not eating fish is an option for the world. It's certainly an option in this country. But also think about um, choosing your sources of fish. I know a lot of very small scale inshore fishermen who are one man and his boat um, who are fishing incredibly sustainably, incredibly locally. Um, those fisheries are sustainable. They are helping to support local communities, uh, local industries. And when responsible fishermen are at sea, they also have a really important role for protecting fisheries from the 
irresponsible fishers, the unsustainable ones. It's really important to think about what you eat, um, but we have to be aware that not everyone has a choice. And let's make sure that our choices are good. And let's make sure that our choices also think about the importance of marine industries, including fisheries, to our coastal communities. So don't let's wipe them all off. Don't let's wipe them all off. But yeah, deciding not to eat fish um, is, is a sign of enormous dedication to marine conservation. And I thank you for that. It is. It is, yes. Even if everybody just ate a little less and a little more consciously, that would make a big difference overall. But one comment that we that we get quite a lot um, on the podcast whenever we talk about sustainable fisheries or that I've seen uh, in social media interactions and things like that is that there is no such thing as sustainable fisheries. But there, there can be. Yes, there can be. Um, there can be sustainable fisheries, absolutely for certain. Um and I'm sure that we will see more and more of them. And we have to. I mean, we have to. Because there are billions of people out there who, who require um, fish for food to you know, feed their families, feed their kids, earn a little bit of money to buy school, um, shoes for their kids so that they can go to school. Um, I think it's, it's really important that we don't always look through the world through a lens of what's happening in our communities, but, but think a bit wider. And yes, there are sustainable fisheries. There can be sustainable fisheries. Perhaps the easiest thing to say is, well, you know, fish eat fish too. And it's possible to take advantage of that. Um, and you can actually increase the yield of, of fisheries and you can have sustainable fisheries. Yeah. So I, I disagree that it's never possible because that's not true. However, if we go back to sharks for a moment, because, hey, why wouldn't we? Um, I think there are some shark species for which you cannot have sustainable fisheries or maybe you could but the the fishery yield would be so tiny that actually hey you know it's not just not worth bothering about but for fishes that can grow quite fast have masses and masses of young yeah we can have sustainable fisheries for those but we just need to make sure that the um, the policies and the management structures are in place to make that happen we have brilliant scientists and we're getting better and better at the process of countries talking to each other and, and making good policy decisions and then carrying those policy decisions through the fleets, not subsidising fishing fleets, um, not giving them cheap fuel, not um, paying them to fish. You know, there, there are lots of things that can be that do need to be done to make fisheries more sustainable. But yeah, this is where we all have to work. This is where we all have to keep saying to our MPs and our ministers, excuse us, we're out here and we want you to do a bit more to improve the sustainability of our fisheries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that links us very nicely back to the sort of individual action aspect of how much power you can really have with your voice and with your consumer choices. And you can show your your governments and, and, and world leaders and, and, and MPs what it is that you really want. Um, and that can really drive that positive change. And we are seeing that. We are seeing an increased focus on sustainability. We are seeing an increased focus on ocean conservation. It's in the language of a lot of um, you know national and international policy now. Um, and we've seen a lot of terms, terminology kind of come into 
that sort of political discourse um, that we weren't seeing before. And that's all driven through awareness and the knowledge that we're gaining through the advancements in science. Um, and, you know, that there is a lot of positive change happening, but we do still have a long way to go. So where do you think we need to focus our efforts as we move forwards? I think we need to carry on moving forwards in all areas. So we need to carry on talking about plastics. We need to talk about fishery sustainability. We need to talk about protection for the most threatened species. Um, we need to make sure that countries are working together. So I don't think that there's a single focus, as in let's just look, press this button. I think our focus is let's love our oceans. So that's a very unfocused answer. Let's love our oceans. Let's carry on loving our oceans. Let's be aware how important they are, not only for ourselves and our communities, but also for billions of other people around the world. Yes, and I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, but just to bring us to a close, because it is World Oceans Day, or it was yesterday by the time this podcast will have come out, what message would you give our listeners this World Oceans Day? Just remember that every single one of you makes a difference. It may be a small difference or it may be an enormous difference, but we all make a difference. And it's really important that we do a little bit of something to help our oceans. It can be in all sorts of scales. What, we're, what I think we've been doing is, I'm just suddenly thinking of heaving a, a rock into a pond, but it's not a pond, it's the ocean. And the ripples are going out in all directions. And there's a, there's a tiny little um, contribution we can all make to a ripple in one direction or another, in some direction. We can't, everybody can't do everything, that's ridiculous, but we can all do a little bit. And I would say always do your little bit, please, because the oceans need our love and we need their, we need the oceans. Never feel that you're useless and you're not having an effect because that's definitely not true. Everyone is having an effect. Just, just by bothering to, to listen to these podcasts, you're having an effect because you're probably going off and talking to someone else about it. Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, maybe, um, you know, I won't walk to the shops. I mean, sorry, I won't drive to the shops today or walk or something. There's, there's always something we can do. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be a really small thing. But just do it today and tomorrow and next week, please. Yes. Every little helps, every little helps. And we really, really do mean that because there are billions of people in the world. And if everyone does their little thing, it all adds up um, to generate that positive impact. So that's a really lovely message. Um, keep going, keep going with what you're doing, whatever it is that you're doing, just keep going with it. Um, but that's a really lovely way to bring our episode to a close. But I do have one final question for you. And it is a question that we end every episode on. And I am really looking forward to your answer on this one. Um, that question is, if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world or skate, what would you be and why? Oh, there's so much choice. There's so much choice. I would want to be something with bit more brain than some of the big plankton filter feeders who I think actually there's I mean I adore basking sharks but I have a feeling there's not a lot going on up there you know um, all they have to do is outwit plankton I suspect there's you know not a lot of deep thought so I'd, I'd want to go for some sort of um, animal with 
a huge brain, much bigger than mine, and, and magical powers, and you know, social. So, I think I would probably go for an eagle ray. Um, and because I'm really shallow, one of the reasons for wanting to be an eagle ray is because they are just so beautiful. If you've ever seen them swimming away, it looks as if they're flying through the ocean, just like a bird. So I, I thought about manta rays for a while, but actually, no, I'm, I'm going to go for something slightly smaller. And I'll be in trouble with the manta trust for not choosing a manta. But hey. <laughs> hey, we actually had the manta trust on and not all of them picked manta for that question. So oh, really? <laughs> they don't. <laughs> they can't defend themselves in that. But no, an eagle ray is a brilliant answer. They are beautiful, beautiful animals. And I do agree, there is not much going on upstairs with a Baskin shark, <laughs> which might be quite a nice existence. We never know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's um, life, is, life is simple. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Actually, you know, I might... Actually, you know, a simple life is suddenly starting to look quite interesting. Maybe I should, maybe I should rethink that. <laughs> just be a basking shark, you know. No, no sort of, no worries. Just sort of, you know, sniff out those plankton and off you go. Yeah, it's an eagle ray. I'm not going to switch. I'm going to stay with the eagle rays. No, eagle ray was perfect. Um, and I can imagine them having quite a nice, graceful and also quite simple lifestyle. I think that would be lovely. But anyway, Sarah, it has been so lovely to talk to you. Such a great way to celebrate World Oceans Day. And I just want to thank you so much for your time and for all your answers. It's been so wonderful to have you on. It's been an enormous pleasure. It really has. And thank you for your time. And thank, thank you to everyone who's listening for your time and for loving oceans enough to, to listen to us, me, to listen to me blithering on. So thank you very much and happy Oceans Day for yesterday. <laughs> happy Oceans Day. I feel like I should have some sort of like celebratory noise <laughs> edited in at the end. But no, it's been, honestly, it has been so lovely to listen to you and everything that you've said has been so valuable. And I'm 100% certain our listeners will agree. So thank you so much, Sarah. Well, next time, maybe I'll come and see you, Isla. And um, up in the West Coast. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Sarah for coming on the podcast. She's a very busy lady and we very, very much appreciate her time. And thank you to you at home for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It means a lot to us and just helps our podcast to be seen by more people. You can also get in touch by emailing isla at saveourseas.com or by following the Save Our Seas Foundation on social media. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we'll see you next time.